Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Standing for the reading of the Word today, as we're reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation, to receive the salvation that comes from trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word and upon our hearts and minds to receive today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. However, I am going to alert you ahead of time. There is going to be a portion of the last, the back end of the service here today, that you're going to stand again. And no one's going to instruct you to stand. You're just going to know. Because that same song's going to be sung again. I'm going to ask you to participate in that song. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see... Yeah, they got the lyrics here. Uh, we just sang about turning bones into armies, seas into highways, about that he gives beauty for ashes. I, I don't know if, if you realize that each one of those are drawn directly from Scripture or where those are drawn from or the context of that. But that's one of the things that we hope to correct and help you with over the next series of time. We begin a new series today entitled Origin Story. Origin Story. The idea of an origin story is it is is the kind of the backstory to the character, how they got to be the person that they are. Uh, Marvel has made an industry out of this. And so you have a superhero or a person, and we meet him at one point, but then at some point in time we get the origin story. Why was Wolverine why he was? You know, what shaped this person or that person to be who they are? How do they become this way? Origin stories are critical for understanding um, ourselves and the world around us. Uh, Berkeley Law says it infuses everyday life and relations with significance by explaining why things are as they are and providing guidance for how things should evolve based on what we already understand about our world. Origin stories also literally give a culture life by designating a beginning and a history. And they shape culture. Um, They give meaning to existence. They define codes of morals. This is very important. Origin stories define the codes of morals and they bind societies together. As a result, origin stories are very powerful. They offer maps that can help us to place ourselves, our families, our communities, and to navigate the world around us by positioning us within something much greater than ourselves. Origin stories provide us with intellectual and ethical anchors. Everybody loves a good origin story, but 
for human beings, we particularly need to have an understanding of what this universal origin story of mankind is really about. Increasingly, origin stories are a war for control over the past. If you've not read the book 1984 by George Orwell, I'd recommend that you read it. We are living this book out more and more every day in so many different ways and fashions. One of the statements in the book is this. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Who controls the past, the understanding of it, interpretation, what the origins are, or reshaping that, controls the future because people base things on that. And whoever controls the present controls the understanding of the past. This is why there's been such a determined effort being made to reshape and redefine not only our nation's history and past, but the history and, 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 and origin story of the human race as a whole. In order to combat some of these false origin stories, we need the true and deep origin story, the one that we find in the book of Genesis. And so over this next season of time, we are going to explore, this is a new thing for the church, the Bible. <laughs> we are going to become biblically literate we're going to understand why these phrases we just sung, what the stories and context are behind those. But most important, we're going to go to the deep, true origin story that shapes our very identity and our understanding of ourselves and the world around us, specifically um, creation and redemption. In many ways, these are the two origin stories. The first one, when God created the universe and the second one, when God recreated the universe through Jesus' death and resurrection. We're all part of the first origin story. We all need to be part of the second origin story. Now, before we get into Genesis and all the rest that goes with this, we need to have an understanding of what this book is to begin with because some of us are only passingly familiar with it. Um, here's a few basic facts about the Bible. It is the best-selling book in the entire world. It is the most read book in the world. This book sells up to 100 million copies that are sold or donated annually. Approximately 20 million copies are sold in the U.S. alone. So it is without doubt the best-selling book and has been for decades of time in the entire world. Second fact, it's the most stolen book in the world. Ironically, although one of the commandments is thou shalt not steal, the Bible is more stolen than any other book in the world. They're taken regularly from hotels, hospitals, bookstores, and other locations. So just an interesting thing. Maybe it's because we just generally feel that we own it by default or because it's mankind's book. Don't know the reason, but that's what it is. Our oldest Bible that we have intact and complete dates to the fourth century. We're talking way back. Some of you might have been... Um, uh, hearing about the Dead Sea Scrolls years back, and why was that a big issue? Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered, I think it was in the 50s, in a cave in Qumran uh, in Israel, um, had copies that were the most ancient copies that we've had of the Old Testament, the books of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and several other books. And what was powerful about that is that these copies that are thousands of years old um, generally line up with the copies that we have today, even though they're thousands of years apart and distant. 
That's absolutely amazing. We can't even keep a simple game of telephone straight. You know how that goes, you know? Talk to one person, tell them the story, the next person the story, next person the story, next person. By the time you get there, it's some bizarre thing that's happened. And so that's why that was kind of an important issue. The Bible was written in three languages across three continents. Forty different authors wrote different sections. It was written in Asia, Europe, and Africa in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, So these are things that are just an incredible thing to see the continuity of this. And it was written over a course of about 1,500 years of time before the final item was completed. The the Bible basically consists of the Old Testament that has 39 separate books and the New Testament, which has 27 books. And then there's chapters and verses broken down on that. The Old Testament pretty much relays the story of God and his people of Israel before the birth of Christ. It begins with creation and outlines a story of the Jewish nation. And uh, the first five books the Jews call the Torah or the law. Um, these contain the Ten Commandments, the stories of Abraham, Noah, and Moses. And Abraham, Noah, and Moses, all those are important to us as believers as they would be to Jewish people. And we'll explain that as the time unfolds. The New Testament begins with the life of Christ and explains the story of God and his people from the birth of Christ on. The first four books are referred to as the Gospels, and uh, they talk specifically about the life of Jesus. And um, after that, you have what are referred to, uh, some historical books like the book of Acts, but then what's called the Epistles. And the Epistles are letters, basically, that were written by the Apostles. So Epistles are written by Apostles. And um, those are letters that would have gone to the church and had a certain authority about it. Um, The term Bible is thought to come from the Greek word tabiblia, which means the books or the scrolls. It's derived, we think, from an old city called Byblos, which was responsible for um, the traffic of papyrus from Egypt through the rest of the empire. And so it seems to have had some connection with that. Uh, If you've looked at the scriptures at all, you realize that it's mostly, a significant portion of it is history. Pretty much from Genesis to the book of Esther is all history. And uh, the same can be argued for the Gospels through Acts uh, as well. You wonder why I'm so into that or why that's an important issue? Because it's the bulk of the scripture is history. But it's history with a purpose and a meaning behind it. One of the things that is unique about this book above everything else is that despite all the time and space and everything that's involved, there's a continuity what well, one writer, and there's a German word I won't bore you with, but it basically means salvation history. That this book, written over the span of time, tells the story of salvation and God's redemption for mankind. It's a powerful, powerful element. Little another fact, there's 185 songs in the Bible. Uh, you probably know the shortest uh, um, verse in the Bible is two words. What are they? Jesus. See, you guys are so literate. You're so knowledgeable of the word. Yeah, the two shortest ones. Sometimes that's the only thing I think we do know. Um, It's been translated uh, into all sorts of different translations. And when we talk about translations, that's something that we should take a quick peek at because that can be confusing. So let me give you a scripture and walk you through this a bit, okay? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 
in the English Standard Version reads this way. For the word of God is living and active. Notice that phrase, living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Note that phrase. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So you have this powerful imagery in this English standard version of the scripture, this sword that kind of slices and chops its way through and discerns and shapes and, and uncovers who we are. Now if you look into the NIV version of this same passage of scripture, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it reads this way, for the word of God is alive and active, that's similar to what we just read, and sharper than any, what, double-edged sword. Is that different than a two-edged sword? No, it's just a different way of expressing that same thing. It penetrates even a dividing in soul, spirit, joints, marrow, judges, instead of discerning it, judges the thoughts and attitudes. It gives a different flavor of what's being there, but it's still consistent with overall what's taking place. So both of those are excellent translations, the English Standard Version or the New International Version, and they convey to you what's taking place, but, but because words are sometimes able to be interpreted different or they can shift over time, it can be a bit of a challenge for us. For example, at Christmas time, we will sing, Deck the Halls with Bonds of Holly, Bows of Holly, la 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 um, Don, you know, we go on through the whole song, and then we wrote that one part where it says, Don, we now are. Yeah, that kind of takes a different twist nowadays, doesn't it? From when it was originally written. I'm not taking a shot at anything. I'm talking about the change of language. In the original language, back in the time when that song was written, probably in the 1800s or so, gay meant happy, joyous. So it's saying, put on your ugly Christmas sweater. Put on your decorative things that are bright and flashy. This is put on your gay apparel. But we use that song today. We say, hmm, because now that has had sexual connotations of a specific nature. So language can shift over time. So discerning what that is and defining that can be challenging for the translators. And that's why it's important that we know the context that it was written in. We need to know the cultural elements that are present. That gives us a lot of understanding as to how then to work these into play. Now, almost all the translations you're going to come across are fine. There's a few I'd say absolutely avoid. One is Jehovah Witness. There's a New Jerusalem Bible that is, that's got bias. The translator came with a bias. And as a result, it's not an effective translation at all. Another one is the Passion Translation I'd say be cautious with. The person came, again, with a bias. Not, not as off as the other one, because the other one's theological in nature. This one is different. But those two I'd watch. But I find ESV to be very effective. It's more clear to the original language. NIV is a little more updated, just as clear, but a little more modern in what it is. And then sometimes I'll pull out the message one, but I don't want to build heavy theology on it. The reason why is the message version is a paraphrase. The intent of the translator there was to try to put this in the most colloquial, the most common language positive, okay? Um, Dear brother, wilt thou come hither? We don't say that. Yo, bro, here, Okay. And so the message version is an attempt to take that second part and make it more relevant so we get the meaning behind it. Read the same passage now in, that we just gave in the message version, okay? God means what he says. Same as the word of God is alive and active, he's saying, but God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one can resist God's worth. We can't get away from it no matter what. 
Now he's paraphrasing. The sword suddenly is a scalpel. Why? Because we don't use swords today, generally speaking. He also probably captures some subtlety uh, that's being conveyed there. A sword is mostly for death and destruction. A scalpel is for healing and for restoration. And so there's a part of this that you can say that is, that is there, that's sitting here saying, look, at the purpose of the scripture is to lay us open. That's the whole implication, whether it's a sword or a scalpel. But he's just trying to use it in updated language so that we can get a better understanding of it and, I, and, and read it easier. I grew up with King James Version, and some people say that's the only version. It's what Jesus wrote and spoke, and it's what we should today. And, and that's, you know, some of you are laughing because that's not it. Okay? King James was in the 1500s. Not a nice guy, but he, he authorized this version. That's why it's the King James authorized version. He authorized it. Okay? King Charles III might do a new version. We don't know. That's up to him, all right? <laughs> Queen is dead. Long live the king. Um, and so some people get hung up over that because it's been a translation for so long, but I grew up with that. Well, it's all Elizabethan English. It's all 15th century, 1500s English. I had Shakespeare classes in, in high school and college that I was brilliant at, and I couldn't understand why everyone was struggling over this language. I'm like, I've been reading it my whole life by being in church because that was our translation. Wilt thou come hither? What's my bot can be pricked? It's like, I got that, okay? I know, forget it. Wipe the last minute out of your mind, all right? <laughs> These newer translations are effective translations, with the exceptions of the ones I said. And there's a wide variety of them. I find ESV and some of these others to be a little more accurate. But again, the main purpose of this was to try to make it as accessible as possible. You're not going to find massive, certainly not doctrinal shifts, until you get to those other two I mentioned. These are consistent, okay? When we look at these passage of scripture. Another thing that's important and um, one quick understanding I'll give you is this. Some people say the Old Testament isn't relevant. We addressed this a couple of months back that we're now in the New Testament period of life and, and that's not true. Jesus quoted the Old Testament so the Old Testament's still relevant to us. Some of you have heard, how many of you have heard the red letter Bible or heard about red letters? Okay, the red letters some Bibles have used to um, mark just the words that Jesus spoke. And so some people say I'm a red letter Christian. I only look at what Jesus spoke. I'm not going to look about what's around it or the Paul epistles or anything else. I'm a red-letter Christian, and that's ignorant, okay, to be blunt. Um, it's, it's parsing and taking a portion of Scripture. You can't do that. Uh, some people said, first I encountered this was in grad studies in Chicago, with someone saying, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, not of Paul. And I'm like, yeah, me too, but what are you saying? What they were saying is, I only follow the red letters of the Gospels. I ignore all the epistles. Well, they like to do that because the epistles are talking more about how we live. And I don't want to listen to that because it challenges how I live. The Bible's be taken as a whole. Not only is it to be taken as a whole, but context becomes extremely important. Context is extremely important. Um, some of you, we did this ways back. We asked for a favorite Bible scripture. Everyone responded. It was great. We had hundreds of scriptures being offered. Then I asked one of the staff, I said, do me a favor. I said, go through there and mark next. Give me, give me a, it was like eight pages. Mark next to the scripture how many times that one was referenced by someone. And there were some that were three, four, two. A lot of ones. A lot of people, you had unique scriptures, which I think is very healthy. The largest one that was consistently mentioned, though, was Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you and, and, and not to destroy you and, and to make sure that you have uh, um, you know, a, a subway franchise of your own to profit you for the rest of your life. Um, that's a broader interpretation, message version. Um, 
we like that passage, and there's nothing wrong with it, and there's nothing wrong with applying it to your life. But if you put that in context, it's not referring to you. It's referring to a specific biblical setting at a specific biblical time. There's nothing wrong with saying, I believe that God has a plan for all of us. I think it's appropriate. But the actual context is different. Um, there was a pastor ways back that then was rebuked by another pastor, which I agreed with the rebuking one. The one pastor's talking about David and Goliath and the whole situation. And David had people that spoke bad about him. And so when people speak bad about you, what does that mean? And the crowd yells back. He says, who's that mean you are? And the crowd yells back. Where? He says, you're right. You're David. And other pastor jumps along and says, you're not David. And he's correct. We are not David. We can, we can understand and relate to what's going on with that. But the real context of the story of David is to say, look at we are to depend upon God for everything. God's the hero of the story. But we keep injecting ourselves in the middle of that. Now, again, for devotional reasons, please understand, you can take and apply these things. And so you're going to walk out and say, God has no plan for my life at all. Yes, he does. Okay, and, and, and I want to worship like David, but I can't now because, yes, you can. Okay, but don't ignore the context and be careful about putting yourselves and ourselves in the center of every story when the real hero throughout the scripture is God and his redemption for us. Let me give you an understanding about the importance of context. Let me tell you a little phrase, a little paragraph here and see if it makes sense to you. So here's the entire biblical phrase I'll give to you today. It's not biblical, but you catch on. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. And you look at that and you say, what the? I have no understanding of what that means. So what I'm going to do right now, without any context to frame the sentence, these paragraphs don't make any sense, so I'm going to read it again, but this time I'm going to provide you some context, and I'm not even going to make it complex. I'm going to give you one word, one interpretive key, one word of a phrase, and then see if now it makes sense to you. The one word is kite. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room for your kite. At, la at first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Do you see how context changes everything? Don't anybody ever tell you that the Bible can be made to say whatever you want it to say. It cannot. Context is critical to an understanding of what's happening and how these things are read. I'm going to encourage you over the next couple of months to do something else real quick that we haven't done for a long time. I'm going to ask you to bring your Bible to church. I know that's just weird. Just weird. But I'm going to ask you to do that. So we go, I don't even have a Bible. I feel like, like giving you the, the Miranda. If you, if, you, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, cannot afford a Bible, then one will be given to you or afforded to you, whatever. <laughs> um, but from now on, we're going to be having people check. If nobody has a Bible, we're throwing them out in the outer darkness, gnashing of teeth. Nobody's going to check. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to know. I'm suggesting it to you for this reason. When we actually bring a physical Bible, but I've got my, my screen, I understand that. But a couple of things can happen. One, there are updates sometimes being given to these translations 
that um, have changed the context of it. And there's some weird stuff going on that way right now. They'll change uh, pronouns and a whole string of other things. And that can be changed and you'll have no knowledge of that or it can be cut off and you have loss of it. Someone has to come and physically take this away from you. Okay? The other thing is when you have your own Bible and you bring it into a place like this and someone's talking, you can see the context. I just pull scripture and lay it out there, but you're looking and saying, wait a minute, it says before this and this, after this, this, and that's not correct. You should be able to know that and see that. Another element is that you can make notes, mark in it. This is a recovered Bible. What I mean by that, it was a rebound one because I've had this one for decades and it was pre-broken down. I've had one or two newer ones, but this was important for me to have rebound and back again because it has decades of notes in it from different times in my life that a passage spoke to me or a speaker said something that stood out to me, and I've marked that down. So again, no, no, I'm not going to say that you're going to hell if you don't bring your Bible. I did tell first service that, but that's a different issue. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Don't feel any judgment on this, but I would just encourage you to actually bring it uh, take a look at some physical form and, and be a part of that. Okay. Having said that, um, I want to take you on a little bit of a, another journey here for a short time, still related here to the scripture that we're looking at. One of the things that's been said in regards to the Bible, the scripture, is that it is, um, you know, we talked about context. Another thing is it's, it's, it's heavy on history, we said. A lot of archaeologists have actually used the Bible to find and discover things. It's been proven very accurate, almost one of the greatest of the, old, of, the, of the ancient writings for discovering things. Some people want to diss it. Like they'll say, wait a minute, it talks about King David. In archaeology, we've never come across a King David in Jewish history. I think it was in the 90s, uh, they suddenly discovered a stone that had on it the house of David, the kingdom of David on it. I've seen it. It's in Israel in a museum uh, there. And, and that just rocked the whole world. It's like, wait a minute, there is evidence for this. There's been a whole host of archaeological study. I won't go into that. Um, but it's proven to be very accurate. Other uh, historical writers, Tacitus and Josephus and others, have, have validated or draw different things that we know certain thing, things of this type from an archaeological viewpoint. But one of the other things can be from a science viewpoint. We say, well, science and the Bible don't line up. The Bible is not a scientific journal. Absolutely true. But the idea um, that it is completely opposite of that is kind of a bizarre statement. There's actually some things where, where um, Scripture was a little bit ahead of the game on a few points. Let me give you a few examples real quickly. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, says that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Um, this is one of the early phrases where the idea that there is that the earth is a sphere. The, the concept of flat earth was a very common issue um, to be expressed. This is one illustration early on. In fact, it goes better in Job chapter 26, verse 7. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. That is an incredible statement to be made that's basically saying that, that the earth floats in space. That was not thought of in that time. As I said, what was common was the idea of a flat earth. In fact, believe it or not, the flat earth group is making a comeback today. Have you read that? They are. There's a whole bunch of people signing up. Oh, no, it's flat earth. It's flat earth. And the ancient world used to have the idea that it was a flat earth and that it rested on the back of a giant turtle. That, that was the truth. 
In fact, this came up in a conversation years back, back in the uh, early 1900s, I think it was, with a, um, a philosopher who had given a, a lecture on the structure of the solar system and stuff, and he's accosted by this little old lady. It's a classic uh, um, uh, story. This true story happened. Um, comes up and says, your theory, the lady, that the sun is the center of the solar system and the earth is a ball which rotates around it has a very convincing ring to it, but it's wrong. I've got a better theory, said the little old lady. And the philosopher said, and what is that? Madam, he's trying to be polite. That we live on a crust of earth which is on the back of a giant turtle. She's just evoking the ancient beliefs. The guy didn't want to demolish this absurd little theory, you know, by bringing the massive scientific evidence to bear. So he decided gently to dissuade the opponent by having her see some of the inadequacies. If your theory is correct, madam, what does this turtle stand on? You're a very clever man, Mr. James. It was William James. And that's a very good question, replies the little old lady. But I have an answer to it. And it's this. The first turtle stands on the back of a second, far larger turtle who stands directly under him. But what does the second turtle stand on, persists James patiently. To this little old lady crows triumphantly, it's of no use, Mr. James. It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) Some people's reasoning comes about the same way. This was common, but in the scripture, we have it said that the earth was over nothing, suspended in space. Leviticus chapter 17, 11 says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. We didn't really have an understanding fully of that until later years, what blood plays in the life of an individual, how critical it is and how important it is. There's other passages of scripture I can go into, quite a few, and I'm going to actually not going to take time for that today. But the idea is that there are certain things that actually have um, a shaping that are within Scripture. So I can go on and on. There is so much within this book that Western civilization, arguably the greatest civilization in the world's own, has been completely built upon that. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take apart these origin stories and see how it relates to us as individuals you're going to find that some of the trendiest, most controversial discussions happening in our society today are rooted in found answers in this book. You're going to find that there is a level of, of this thing of salvation history that spreads throughout. There are even microcosms I could draw your attention to briefly. We talked about Moses last week and how Moses had this salvation experience kind of at the, at the burning bush. But there's a broader narrative, let me draw your attention to, that has been used and is believed to be a microcosm of our circumstances, and you find this throughout Scripture. Israel being in Egypt as slaves to the Egyptians, that has been seen over and over again as our slavery to sin as a, as a people. The Passover, the slaughtering of an innocent and the lamb's blood being spread over so the death angel passes over is a mark of salvation that later became our communion. This is all part of that. So this idea of slavery to sin, this death of an innocent that that covers and brings us out of our sin and out of our slavery. And then the wandering for 40 years when they could have quickly gone to the land and said there's this wandering for 40 years that's similar to our walk as Christians. And some of you aren't going to like to hear this, but yes, we're wandering in the desert. We're wandering in a place where we will never find full satisfaction, but we're following one through that whole desert experience to whom is going to give us life. And so you have the coming out of slavery. You have this forgiveness of sin for death of an innocent. You have this Christian life that is walking, constantly growing and changing and developing. And in this desert experience, but following one who is leading us to where? The promised land. 
which is a euphemism for heaven that has been used throughout space and throughout time and societies. This is just one snapshot of what we see in the scripture with this whole meta arc, if you will, that's coming along. Now, quickly, as we wrap this up, I want to bring your attention again to the scripture we started with, 2 Timothy 3.15. And, and this original translation says you've been taught the whole scriptures from childhood and they've given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus. And so it's talking about salvation, again, all through the scripture, all of it from Esther, Job, all of it's talking about salvation, everything, revelation, the gospels, the book of Acts, the prophets, it's all talking about salvation. And then it says this, all scripture is inspired by God. And you read that and say, wow, that's great. There was an inspiration here. This other translation of the ESV maybe breaks it down for you better. In the ESV, it reads this way, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with sacred scripture, we're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. That is an actual better statement for inspiration. Inspiration is the spirit comes in. It inspires us. I'm an artist and I'm I'm stuck flat and then suddenly I have an inspiration. There's something creative that moves and motivates me. In this same way, the belief is that while there were all these different authors, all these different people, throughout all this different time, that they were all inspired by God. They were not possessed. Oh, what just happened? No, their same skill sets, their same abilities, their same thinking, their literary styles even we see in there. But the same spirit, and in this sense you could say the same person, wrote the entire book. I want to put this into your brain in the strongest fashion I possibly can. The biblical authors lived in different eras and came from different cultures. Some were Jews, some were Gentiles or non-Jews. Some were kings, some were paupers, some were highly educated. Some had little formal education. Some were religious leaders, some were political leaders, some were prophets. Some were simply ordinary, everyday people. The variation in the author's backgrounds is incredible. All of that. With this much disparity, you might expect the Bible to contain different assertions about the truth. In fact, the Bible has one continuing unifying message, though, from the first book to the last. The likelihood, the likelihood that 40-plus people who wrote in three different languages, living on three different continents, in different eras and cultures, would come up with one continual message, one continual theme, one continual plan of salvation is nothing short of miraculous. There is no other book like this book ever. And the common theme through this is salvation history. Star Trek and Marvel are struggling because just with 20 years of development or 30, 40 years of development, they have all these plot holes and incontinuities with their storylines and they're trying to resolve them with one movie or the next because they just can't get it straight in some of the things and they've only been doing it for 30, 40 years. We're talking thousands of years of time over three different continents with different languages, cultures, personalities, all of that and there's a continuity and a continuousness. Salvation history. The redemption of a lost people. There is nothing like this book. It speaks of your origin and mine. It tells us our future. 
It gives us an understanding of how to live, of what is right and what is wrong. There is nothing else like this book. And throughout it all, with different cultures, different people, different languages, different locales, there's a sweeping panorama of truth, of a creation, of a fall, and of the promise of redemption, a promise that ultimately is kept. Darkness, formless, no beauty for sight. Nothing was waiting for something, someone. He hovered over the face of the waters and he said, let there be light. And there was light and it was good. Stars, sun, moon, and sky, he set them on their course, stretched out the heavens like a curtain. Yeah, it's showtime. He laid out the foundations of the earth and created towering mountains with a whisper of his voice, gathering waters and calling them seas, sending them into valleys and streams, giving the beasts of the fields fresh water. Yes, my God provides. His thoughts are so infinitely considerate that from the crawling ant to the birds of the air, he gave them home. And every morning they sing about it. But he didn't stop there. He saved the best for last. You see, he constructed man, fashioned him with the very palm of his hand, smiled, looked at him, and poof, now he's a living man. Gave him dominion, power, and something to do. And when he became lonely, God even gave him food. That's nothing my God can't do. They were intimately, intricately made to give God glory, but then man failed. For eternal separation Cut That's a wrap Fade to black Right? Wrong This is just the beginning You see he had a plan And his will would be accomplished He would do it with what he started with His word Promise Starting with Abraham That he would always be with him And his entire family And this was no little house on the prairie They were as many as stars in heaven And sand on the seashore No matter what He would care for them Over and over He'd be there for them For Moses He was a burning bush And a highway for the children of Israel To cross the Red Sea For David He was a rock that made the giant Fall to his knees Boom Even when he clips with darkness and God feeling too far to reach, he always found a way to bring them back and put them on their feet. Yes, he kept his word. From generation to generation, he kept his promise. A promise foretelling of a light, the light, that would come and outshine the brightest star and swallow up the darkness. A promise of love, hope, and a future. A promise of a Savior, our Redeemer. Cause there's nothing better than you Oh, there's nothing better than you Oh, there's nothing, nothing is better than you Oh, there's nothing better than you Oh, there's nothing better than you Nothing.
loves a good origin story. It gives us an idea of where we've come from, of who we are. Uh, gives us an understanding of how we got here and where this is all at. Everybody loves a good origin story. This one is yours and mine. And so over the next little season of time, we're going to take apart the book of Genesis, and I think you're going to find that it's incredibly relevant, even controversial in some ways, to what we're dealing with here today. We begin next week with the power of words what language and how it shapes us and then we kept marking on from there if you didn't understand all the words in the song by the time we're done I think you will understand the context of some of those phrases and the stories and meaning behind them and they'll have meaning to you so when just talking about you know, turning mourning into gladness you'll understand what that's about or about these bones that become an army and why that matters and should matter to you and to me And yes, God has a plan for your life. And it's a plan to prosper you and not to destroy you. But there's also a wider context than that. So that's our journey. There'll be those available up front if you'd like to have prayer. Father, we come before you and I thank you for your word that is unlike anything else. These are not just the philosophies of men or things that we've created. This is your word your history of redeeming mankind. And we play a role in this. So God, I just pray that you would just soak us in your word in this next season of time, that you'd strengthen your church as a result of it. Let us walk out the doors with this anticipation, I pray today, in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen. Amen. And we'll explain where that word comes from too.